This week, you're going to need to buckle your seatbelts, keep your arms and legs in the ride during the full episode, because this one is a true roller coaster. It started off with me researching the case of three missing women, leads to a deadly brotherly feud in American horsemanship, and also includes the disappearance and likely murder of an American candy heiress. So, buckle in folks, it's a wild ride. I'm going to tell you the story, how it unfolded for me as I researched it. So I have this spreadsheet that I've referenced a few times. It has some missing persons cases that I'd like to tell the stories sometime. The list is ever growing and evolving. And when I'm ready to research a new case, I go to that spreadsheet and I sort of pick randomly. That's what happened when I selected the disappearances of Ann Miller, Patricia Blau, and Renee Bruhl. Little did I know that their story would lead to so much more. So let's dive into their case because it's going to get crazy and weird. On Saturday, July 2nd, 1966, the three women had plans to head to Indiana Dunes State Park, which is now called the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. This is a park along the shore of Lake Michigan. The weather that day was supposed to be hot and beautiful, a great way to spend the day at the beach with friends to kick off the 4th of July weekend. 21-year-old Ann Miller left her house in Lombard, Indiana at about 8 a.m. driving her 1955 Buick to pick up 19-year-old Patricia Blau in Westchester, Indiana. Ann was described as 5 foot 2 inches tall, a Caucasian woman with brown hair and blue eyes. Patricia was described as 5 foot 4 inches tall, 115 pounds, Caucasian female with brown hair and brown eyes. And Anne and Patty had met each other while boarding their horses at the same stable in Illinois. And that common love of horses had made them fast friends. And so they, they grew close over their love of horses. As Patty was leaving her house, she told her mom that they planned to be home by early evening. Another friend that they were picking up, Renee Brule, had to be home in time to make dinner for her husband, so they'd be home around dinner time. Anne and Patty then picked up 19-year-old Renee Brule from her home on the west side of Chicago. Renee was married to Jeffrey Brule, a 21-year-old accounting student. Renee was described as 5 foot 9 inches tall, between 120 and 150 pounds, a Caucasian female with brown hair and hazel eyes. The three friends 
stop at a drugstore, they buy some suntan lotion, and then they set off for the park. They arrive at the park at about 10 a.m., right on schedule, and Anne parks her car in the lot. They then had to hike about three quarters of a mile to their spot on the beach area, which is about 100 yards from the Lake Michigan shoreline. And it was a beautiful summer day, like perfect summer day. It was 92 degrees by noon. And they were not the only people at the park that day. There were about 8,600 people who visited Indiana Dunes State Park that day, according to park records. So the women just sort of blended in with a crowd of sun seekers. One young couple, Mike Yankalasa and Francis Cicero, saw the women leave their belongings on their blanket and enter the water in their bathing suits. But by evening, the women's belongings were still there, untouched on their blanket. There were no sign of the women though. So Mike and Francis flagged down a park ranger and pointed out the belongings. The ranger, Bud Connor, picked up the blanket and he turned the items in to the park superintendent's office, certain that someone would be back for the belongings and thankful that someone had turned them in. Anne had left behind denim shorts, a polo shirt, shoes, thermos, and the keys to her car. Patty had left a yellow robe, sunglasses, a towel, and her wallet. Renee had left a large towel, shorts, a blouse, cigarettes, suntan lotion, and her purse with about $55 in checks inside. On July 4th, 1966, Park Superintendent William Svedek received a phone call from Harold Blau, Patty's father. And Harold explains that the women were supposed to have visited the park on Saturday, but they hadn't returned home. And William immediately thought of those unclaimed belongings. Inside the belongings, he finds the key to the car among the clothing and other items. And the key happened to have a keychain that was like a mini license plate attached. And so he sent park rangers into the parking lot looking for a car with a matching license plate. And they happened to find it. This must have been like needle in a haystack type search, but they find this car. They call the Indiana State Police and they discover that the car is registered to Ann Miller and that missing persons reports had been filed for Anne and her two friends, Patricia Blau and Renee Brule, the day before. So on July 5th, a huge search is begun. Witnesses mentioned that they saw the women enter the water and they saw them talking to a man operating a 14 to 16 foot long white boat with a blue interior and an outboard motor. Some witnesses said that they saw the women board the boat and then the boat headed west. So the search starts. They searched the water. They searched the sand dunes. There's some woods nearby. They searched the woods in the meadow. But there are no sign of the women. 
a hundred volunteer searchers join in the search in addition to mounted police the u.s coast guard offers 10 cutters one airplane and a helicopter to aid in the search the civil air patrol added a minimum of four planes and the army provided two helicopters and a dozen scuba divers so like this is an all-out search according to the u.s coast guard there were an estimated five to six thousand boats on the lake between chicago and indiana dunes state park that day so they really had their work cut out for them during one day of searching they discover some debris from a possible boat accident near a power generating station it's like styrofoam from boat seating and some wood that's like soaked in oil but there were no reports of any missing boats or boat accidents that happened recently but especially on july 2nd the day that the women went missing so it's not known if the debris is connected with the women's disappearances or not, but the Civil Air Patrol fl flew over the area to get like an aerial view of the debris field, but there's not anything more. There's nothing else found. The U.S. Coast Guard began checking every boat along the Lake Michigan shore in Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan trying to find these women the civil air patrol was searching from searching the lake from chicago to new buffalo michigan they're searching everywhere finally a visitor to the park who had been making home videos on july 2nd offers investigators his film to and Armed with that footage, investigators were able to narrow down their search to two possible boats. One was a 16 to 18 foot fiberglass trimaran runabout with a three hole design. And I don't know what any of those words that I just said mean. I'm just repeating what was in the reports. I am not a boat person. So it was all nonsense to me. It was operated by a man who matched the description provided by witnesses. And that description was a man in his early 20s, a tanned complexion, dark wavy hair, wearing a beach jacket. There were also three females wearing bathing suits that matched the suits the women were seen wearing aboard that boat. A second boat, a 26 to 28 foot Trojan cabin cruiser, had three men and three women aboard. The cabin cruiser was seen about 3 p.m., three hours after the women had entered the smaller boat. So investigators came to believe that the women had been in the water, they boarded the smaller boat, and then after a bit they were dropped off at the beach by the driver of the smaller boat, and he went back and picked up his two male friends and the cabin cruiser and according to some witness statements this timeline matches up because they had seen the women walking along the dunes and eating some sandwiches around this time investigators also 
consider the possibility that the women may have drowned. But family and friends say that Patricia and Renee were very strong swimmers and that Anne was described as a fair swimmer. Some reports say that Patricia and Anne were very strong swimmers and that Renee was a fair swimmer, but the earliest reporting from this case says that Patricia and Renee were strong swimmers and Anne was a fair swimmer, so that's what I went with. I know it doesn't matter. Just two of them were strong swimmers. One of them is a fair swimmer. So it doesn't matter. Two of them are very strong swimmers. And when I say strong swimmers, Patty could swim 20 to 30 miles. Like, I can't even walk that. I, I get exhausted thinking about driving 20 to 30 miles. So, it seems unlikely anyhow that they drowned, that the women drowned. But the Coast Guard had located three men who said that they attempted to persuade the women to get on the boat. Not like in a creepy way, but just like, hey, come out and hang out with us on our boat. And they said that one, one of the women claimed that she was married, so she couldn't go, which lines up with Renee. And the men reported that the women were standing in chin-deep water, and so this gives some credence to the theory that the women drowned. The problem I have with this is Anne is five foot two, Renee is five foot nine, so chin deep on who? There's a seven inch gap here. If the water's chin deep on Anne, it's only like shoulder deep on Renee. If it's chin deep on Renee, well then poor Anne is doggy paddling for her soul. So I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. But anyhow, scuba divers were sent back into that area a few times, but they find nothing. There's no sign of the women. So the leaves in the park are drying up. So the investigators begin looking into the women's backgrounds for potential clues. One clue discovered in Renee's purse fueled speculation that their disappearances were voluntary. Inside her purse, investigators found a note that Renee had written to her husband, but that she hadn't given to him. And in the note, she stated that Jeffrey spent too much time working on hot rod cars with his friends and seemed to insinuate that she wanted to leave him. When they asked Jeffrey about any problems in their marriage, poor Jeffrey was clueless. He was unaware of any issues. The two had been married for just 15 months, and so friends and family speculated that Renee wrote that note in a moment of anger. And listen, I've been a newlywed, and it is hard work taking two lives and, like, blending them together. And you just switch out hot rod cars for video games and this could be me, you know? But it's even harder when you're 19 and 21 years old. Like, they're babies. I can't even imagine that. So they're very young and they're trying to blend these two lives. Like, that's bound to happen. Like, you write this note, like, to your husband, like, stop being an idiot. And that doesn't mean you're 
going to run away just means you're frustrated in a moment, regardless. Both Anne and Patty also had secrets. Anne was employed as a horse exerciser at Oak Brook Polo Club. And she and Patty were associated with some men who had criminal backgrounds in the horse market. And in one instance, Patty suffered a suspicious injury to her face in March of 1966. According to friends, it looked like someone may have hit her in the face. And when friends asked her about the injury, Patty allegedly told them that she was having problems with, quote, horse syndicate people, end quote. Friends of Anne's told investigators that she was three months pregnant in July of 1966. And she also mentioned entering a home for unwed mothers. There were some reports that said that Patty may have also been pregnant, but like I couldn't confirm this. And there was a report that said that both Anne and Patty had boyfriends who were married men. Patty had a former boyfriend, John Paul Jones, who was an ex-convict living in California at the time. And he was involved in the rodeo. He was like a rodeo cowboy. He was questioned in connection with her disappearances and there was no link found between the disappearances and John Paul Jones. One of the visitors to Indiana Dunes State Park on July 2nd, 1966 was a man named Ralph Largo Jr. And he resembled the man driving the boat, seen driving the boat, like the tanned complexion, the dark wavy hair. Ralph Largo lived with his aunt and uncle in Gary, Indiana, and his aunt and uncle performed abortions, which were illegal at the time. So a theory emerged that the women went with Largo in that small boat to a larger boat several miles off the shore where at least Anne received an abortion. And the theory went that something went wrong with the procedure and Anne died and then Patty and Renee were killed to keep them quiet as well. This theory was unconfirmed and Largo later died in Florida in 2009. Patty, Anne, and Renee also frequently rode horses at Tricolor Stables in Palatine, Illinois owned by George Jane. And George and his brother Silas Jane were embroiled in this bitter rivalry, which might be the understatement of the year. And this brings me to the second part of the story. So Silas Jane was the oldest of 12 children. And in 1924, he had his first run-in with the law at just age 17 when he was convicted of rape. He served just one year and then he joined his brothers DeForest, Frank, and George in running the first family ranch. By the 1930s, the brothers were shipping trainloads of wild horses from the west to their ranch where they would keep the best to be trained and turned into race, race horses 
and the others were sent to slaughter for dog food. Yeah. Sorry. Ugh. The brothers were known as the Jane Gang, and this was a rough crowd. They were bruisers, basically, like brawling, drinking, just rough crowd. But they were super skilled horsemen, and they ran a really successful horse business. <laughs> but they did some shady business, too. They sold horses at inflated profits, and they often sought out wealthy business people who would send their daughters to them to become skilled equestrians. Like, all girls want to be horse riders, you know, that thing. And Silas would tell the parents, listen, your daughter has natural abilities, but she's going to need a better, more expensive horse in order to progress. And would sell her parents a more expensive horse. Silas eventually opened up his own riding academy and George had his own stable and became one of Silas's most fiercest competitors. And this seems to begin their decades-long battle that eventually ends up with multiple deaths. Multiple deaths. On January 28th, 1952, while George, his wife Marion, their three children were in Florida, a fire destroyed their home. And while the cause of the fire was not determined, it was labeled suspicious. And they had a suspect, and it was his brother, Silas. In 1961, George's horse, ridden by his 14-year-old daughter, Linda, won in an annual horse show at Oak Brook. And this really peeved Silas off. And in 1963, George's horse run and won an open jump event at Lake Forest in a Lake Forest horse show. And Linda later testified that she heard Silas tell her father, quote, I'll kill you, you SOB, end quote. That same year, 1963, someone fired 28 shots into George's office at tricolor riding stables. George had been working late, but he left right before the gunfire erupted. So perhaps he was tipped off, perhaps he sensed something was up, but he left just minutes before the gunfire rang out. He actually left his Cadillac parked in the parking lot outside, took home a borrowed car, and he left the office lights on. This wasn't the only attempt on George's life, though. According to local police, cars often tried to run him off the road, and he found a stick of dynamite at his back door. The fuse had been lit, but it had fizzled out before it reached the, the gunpowder. Additionally, his prize-winning mare, a horse worth $25,000, was killed when it was injected with turpentine while at an out-of-town event in 1964. So now we're bringing the horses into this. And we're injecting it with turpentine? But it was June 14, 1965, that their feud turned deadly. 
22-year-old Cheryl Lynn Rude had stopped by to talk to George after having lunch with his daughters. She had just won an event for him the previous day. George had known Cheryl since she was 11 and had begun training with him. So she spoke with him. She was getting ready to leave at about 1.30. George handed her the keys to his 1965 Cadillac and told her she could take it back down to the office. He still had some work to do. When Cheryl turned the key in the ignition, three sticks of dynamite that were clamped to the steering column under the hood exploded. The bomb had been intended for George. George took a polygraph test and it showed that he knew nothing about the bomb. His brother Silas, on the other hand, refused to take a polygraph and investigators believe that Silas was jealous of George, who was grossing $400,000 a year and had 104 horses stabled at Tricolor. Investigators in the disappearances of Ann Miller, Patty Blau, and Renee Brule explored the possibility that they may have witnessed someone placing the bomb that killed Cheryl Rude or knew about the bomb or saw something and that they were killed to silence them and that this could have explained that injury Patty had to her face but this theory has never been proven they haven't found any evidence investigators found that Stephen Grodd and Eddie Moran had been hired by Silas to kill George they flew from Florida to commit murder the day of Cheryl's death. Silas eventually offered them $15,000 to, quote, do the job right. Just three days later, Moran admitted that he and another man had been paid $300 to fire the shots into George's office back in 1963. Grodd worked with the sheriff's department and so he called up Silas and Silas told him, quote, it's time to buy a horse, end quote. And this was code for making a hit on George. So they arranged to meet up at a, an upcoming horse event to discuss the details and an, a, a detective with the sheriff's department posed as a hired gunman and accompanied Grodd to the meeting. Silas gave Grodd $1,000 and told him it was, quote, down payment. This was enough to indict Silas for conspiracy to commit a crime. However, when the trial began in 1966, Grodd, who was the star witness, was called to testify and suddenly couldn't remember anything. Prosecutors were forced to drop the charges against Silas. Grodd was held in contempt of the court. Cheryl Rude's murder has never officially been solved. No one has been charged with her murder, although we can make assumptions. But unfortunately, it's not been officially solved. Shortly after Silas was freed, George's office was burglarized, and George was indicted for income tax tax fraud. So George was no saint either. According to one of George's employees, Silas 
claimed to have given the IRS incriminating evidence. George stood trial for income tax fraud and an astonishing 57 witnesses were called that claimed George had an income of $270,000 between 1959 and 1961, but paid taxes at only $100,000. Despite this, despite the witnesses, a jury found him innocent. George hired Frank Michelle Sr., a former Inverness police chief, as security to protect him, his family, and his property. On January 19, 1969, Silas killed Frank Michelle Jr., the 28-year-old son of Frank Michelle Sr. According to Silas's statement... Silas claimed to be home alone when the doorbell rang at 10.55 p.m. He drew a weapon from his bathrobe. Like, who has a gun in their bathrobe? But Silas does. Silas drew his gun and went to answer the door. And two shots rang out. They come through the door. One grazed Silas's abdomen. And so Silas begins firing back. As Michelle, who was wounded, was trying to flee... Silas grabbed an M1 Army carbine, again, I don't know the words I'm saying, I'm just M1 Army carbine, and shot Michelle multiple times. According to Silas, he like flipped the guy over to see who he had shot, didn't recognize the guy, he then called the sheriff. Investigators discovered that Michelle had been shot nine times. In his pocket, they discovered George Jane's phone number and address. They also found a map showing the way to Silas's ranch. According to Frank Michelle Sr., he and his son, who were private detectives, were keeping Silas under surveillance, and they had put an electronic beeper on his car 12 days before Michelle was killed. Silas traded in his Cadillac for a newer model, as he did every year. Must be nice, right? Uh, but he traded in his car. A mechanic discovered the beeper and removed it. The Michelles thought the battery had died, so they went to the ranch to install a new battery. I don't know how the ringing the doorbell like plays into that, but... Frank Michelle Jr.'s death was ruled a justifiable homicide. At an inquest into Michelle's death, George had two bodyguards present and tape recorded the proceedings, and police spotted a private investigator hired by Silas taking photos of George. So things are escalating. They are getting heated on October 28, 1970. The feud between the brothers reached its deadly finale when George, age 47, was shot as he played bridge in his basement rec room with his wife, his daughter Linda, and Linda's husband Milton Wright. A man with a rifle was seen running across the yard to a red and white 1969 Ford pickup truck driven by someone else. Silas 
refused to take a polygraph, and he downplayed the whole feud with George, saying it had been, quote, grossly exaggerated, end quote. He did not attend George's funeral, saying it would embarrass the family because he'd le been left out of the obituary. Sounds like someone is a salty little sea dog. But that's not where this story ends either, because Silas Jane has also been linked to the disappearance of 65-year-old Helen Brock, the widow of Frank Brock, owner of E.J. Brock & Sons Candy Company, the wealthiest candy producers of the time. Brock's candy corn, anyone? Only the best brand of candy corn out there. Remember how Silas liked to prey on wealthy business people and sell them horses at inflated rates? Yeah, well, that's how Helen gets wrapped up in this story. When Helen's husband, Frank, passed away in 1970, he left her with an estimated net worth of $20 million. Helen is described as 5'10", 200 pounds, a Caucasian female with red hair and blue eyes. On the day of February 17, 1977, Helen was in Rochester, Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic for a checkup. She received a clean bill of health and walked back to her hotel room. On her way, she stopped at a store. She bought some towels, cosmetics, and while at the store, she told the clerk that she was in a hurry because her houseman was waiting for her. And investigators later found this odd because Helen was traveling alone. But Helen did have a man named Jack Matlick who helped her run her house after Frank died. He took care of the house and the property for her. Initially, Jack claimed that he met Helen at O'Hare International Airport when she flew in from Rochester, Minnesota. However, the plane crew didn't remember anyone matching Helen's description on any flights that day, but they also were not interviewed until like a significant time period had passed, as we'll see. So by the time they're interviewed, can they even remember a specific day and remember a specific person on a specific flight? I can't remember what I ate for dinner last night. Jack claims that he picked Helen up from the airport and he drove her to her house in Glenview. And Jack called his wife to say he'd be staying in Glenview because he had work to do that weekend. And this was unusual because Jack lived apart from Helen in a different house that she owned in Schaumburg, Illinois. So it was unusual that Jack would also be staying in Glenview. Jack said that Helen stayed in Glenview for the weekend preparing for her upcoming trip to Florida. And then on Monday, he drove Helen to O'Hare at 7 a.m. for a flight. She didn't have much luggage and she also didn't have a flight reservation. Friends later said that when they stopped by Glenview during the weekend, they were told that Helen was not available. And it wasn't clear to me if they were told this by Jack or if they were told this by someone else, um, like a housekeeper or someone. But they were told that she wasn't available. Um, and 
It was also noted that Helen didn't call anyone during this weekend, which was uncharacteristic of Helen. Apparently, she liked to call people on the phone. Also uncharacteristic of Helen is that she always traveled with lots of luggage. So, friends raised questions with Jack's story about dropping her off at the airport without much luggage. They also said that Helen was not a morning person and she would not fly out on an early morning flight. She would not have been at the airport at 7 a.m. There is no record of Helen flying out of O'Hare on that day, but I also don't know how much record keeping was kept by airports in the 1970s. Like, I don't know. I, like, I know it's not like today where everything is tracked, but Jack said that Helen signed several checks before she left, but investigators found this suspicious because it was $15,000 in checks and most of them were written out to him. But when investigators took a closer look at the checks, they determined that they were not signed by Helen. Jack's story then changes a bit and he said that he actually signed the checks for Helen because she had injured her hand. But when handwriting experts took a look at the checks, they don't believe that Jack signed the checks either. So they don't know who signed the checks. When investigators questioned Jack's wife, Jack told her a different story. Jack told his wife that Helen didn't actually return to Chicago from the Mayo Clinic. He instead waited in Glenview for her, and while there, he arranged to have the carpet replaced in one of the rooms and two rooms painted. And this also sounds suspicious. Like, why are you having carpet replaced? Why are you having room, rooms painted? I immediately think you're covering up blood spatter and stuff. But workers who did the work in Helen's house were questioned and they didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. Jack also had a pink Cadillac that he had been driving, cleaned and waxed and the interior shampooed, which investigators thought was suspicious, but they also didn't find any evidence. Jack didn't try to report Helen missing for over two weeks. And this is why there's a delay in people questioning, like, airport employees and stuff. When he did finally try to report her missing, he was told that the missing person's report had to come from a family member. So he contacted her brother, Charles Voorhees, who lived in Ohio. Charles flew to Chicago to report his sister missing, but in the meantime, Charles and Jack decided to search the Glenview home for clues, which, oh, don't do this. You report a person missing and you let the police do their job. Come on. During the search, they find Helen's diaries. Like, apparently she wrote in her diary, like, every day. She documented everything. But according to Charles, Helen had left very specific instructions that if anything were to happen to her, the diaries should be destroyed. Why? What are you hiding, Helen? Anyhow, so she wanted her di diaries destroyed. So Charles allowed Jack to burn the diaries outside his presence. 
So Jack takes the diaries somewhere and burns them. Obviously, obviously, Jack is the prime suspect. There was no ransom note in Helen's disappearance. And she's a millionaire, so it seems like she's missing there would be a ransom note. And Jack's story, or stories, is just not plausible. It doesn't seem to be adding up. Jack submitted to polygraph tests, but they were all inconclusive. And an attorney, John Caldwaller Mank, was appointed to manage Helen's estate. And Mank tried to question the man Helen was seeing at the time of her disappearance, a man named Richard Bailey. But Bailey immediately lawyered up. He hired an attorney and refused to speak with Mank. He wouldn't even admit that he had known Helen. So, Richard Bailey also becomes a suspect. Richard Bailey was active in Chicago's horse market. We're back at horses, folks. He was the owner of Bailey Stables and Country Club Stables. And it will probably come as no shocker that Richard Bailey had a reputation as a con man around Chicago. Are there any horsemen with integrity? I don't know. He had a reputation for romancing recently divorced or widowed women and then scamming them out of money by convincing them to invest in horses. Sound familiar? Bailey introduced Helen to the horse business, and her accountant later estimated that she spent $250,000 on horses. Bailey and his brother sold Helen horses for much more than they were worth. Sound familiar? Helen was declared legally dead in 1984. She left all of her money to her brother Charles and to several animal protection organizations. Her case remained open, but inactive, until 1989. In that year, a prosecutor investigating horse fraud discovered that Richard Bailey had connections to none other than our good buddy Silas Jane. Investigators in Helen's disappearance theorized that Silas and Richard were involved in her disappearance after she discovered that Bailey had scammed her out of thousands of dollars, and they conspired with others to have her killed in order to prevent her from going to authorities. In 1994, Richard Bailey was charged with numerous counts of fraud, conspiring to commit murder, soliciting to commit murder, and causing the murder of Helen. He pled guilty to racketeering, conspiracy, mail and wire fraud, and money laundering, but he denied having anything to do with Helen's disappearance. He admitted to scamming many widows and divorcees, but denied having scammed Helen. I don't know what made Helen different, but he denied scamming her. He's like, listen, I did it to everyone else, not to Helen. Despite this, a judge in his case convicted Bailey of conspiracy to kill kill Helen and sentenced Richard Bailey to life in prison, though this sentence was later reduced to 30 years. But investigators know that Bailey didn't act alone. Unfortunately, no one else has been charged. In 
In 2005, investigators announced that a man named Joe Plemons confessed to killing Helen, having been hired by none other than Silas Jane. According to the confession, Plemons and 10 others beat and shot Helen and then incinerated her body at a steel mill in Gary, Indiana. Plemons signed a statement granting him immunity from prosecution. And according to the confession, Helen was murdered to keep her quiet about these horse deals. And according to Plemons, Bailey had nothing to do with her murder. Plemons named nine of the others involved in the murder. The one unnamed person was a woman who Plemons, whose name Plemons didn't know. And, but Plemons said that this woman acted as Helen and used her plane ticket to fly from Rochester, Minnesota to Chicago that day. Police searched for evidence to corroborate this story, but they were unable to find enough to charge any of the people named by Plemons. It is noted that Plemons did give contradicting stories and has a lifetime history as a con man. Everyone in this story does. But... There is some evidence to support Plemons' confession, too. Plemons had a ruby ring that he said fell off Helen's finger while they were disposing of her body. Family and friends say that this ring is, in fact, Helen's, but authorities have not been able to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt, like with DNA testing or anything. Richard Bailey sought new sentencing after Plemons' confession. His attorneys argued that it proved that he was innocent of Helen's murder. However, the court ruled against him in 2005. He served his sentence and was released from prison in 2019 at the age of 90. Jack Matlick died in a Pennsylvania nursing home in February of 2011 at the age of 79. And our buddy Silas, Silas Jane, died in, on July 13, 1987 of leukemia. After George Jane's death, Silas was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder in 1973. He was sentenced to serve 6 to 20 years, and he was released in 1979. So, short sentence there. And then after that, he... It looks like he continued to go on with a life of crime. Suspected in multiple, multiple things. That's my episode for this week. It's a long one. I'm not going to lie. It was by far the longest case that I've ever covered. But it just kept going. It just kept going for me. Like, this guy's name just kept coming up. And so I felt like we ha I had to do it all. I had to do it all. And the fact that he's linked to four disappearances, Ann Miller, Patty Blau, Renee Brule, and Helen Brock. I don't know about this one. What do you think? What do you think? You can, just a reminder, you can find us on Twitter at PodNever. You can also find me on Facebook, Never Found, Never Forgotten Podcast. And let me know what you think. If you have a case that you'd like to recommend or you'd like to share something with me, you can also email me at neverfoundneverforgottenpod at gmail.com.
Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Bye.